right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. I am going to be turning the reins over here shortly to Cody McBride, who is conducting today's interview with John Simpson. If you are a podcast-only listener, you can get to know a lot more about Cody on our YouTube page. We did a What's in the Bag with him. We've done a film room with him. We've done an introduction video with him. And If you're a podcast-only listener, you know him, of course, as he's been a guest on this show or a host, co-host, if you will, and also is the producer from the live shows, and you hear him chime in from time to time. He has a background in the military, of course, which we have well documented, and he is up at the Simpson Cup this week and did a fantastic, fantastic interview uh, with John Simpson, the founder of this event. They talk about the On Course Foundation, what the heck the Simpson Cup is, his life growing up with polio, how that did not hold him back. You know, they discuss his early days working with IMG all the way up to his departure and his thoughts on the professional golf scene. This is a fantastic, fascinating interview. I want to give a shout out to our friends at Schwab. John Simpson is one of their challengers for the year, featured uh, on their website, schwabgolf.com. You can learn more and see more from John uh, there, and they do a great job supporting great stories around the world of golf. Before I turn it over, I want to give a shout out to our friends at Roback. Guys, you guys have supported them tremendously through this show. They continue to support us because of it. We've been wearing their gear for a while now. Spoiler alert, I'm wearing the same blue hoodie that I've basically been wearing since Sunday because no one's seen me in public. Been at a few golf tournaments lately. Everywhere we go, we see Roback everywhere. Their performance polos, they fit so much better than the boxy polos that you see in other places. Their four-way stretch is next level. Material super soft, and it stays wrinkle-free. Their performance Q-zips are a game-changer. They're soft. Uh, I throw one on in the morning. I keep one in my golf bag. They're great for the evening. They're great for the golf course. You can wear them anywhere. And lastly, the hoodies, the performance hoodies, the stretchiest, softest hoodies in golf might be the most comfortable performance hoodies on the entire market. And again, you can wear them multiple times without having to wash them. They're just really strong, good quality. That's always a sign of good quality is if you don't have to wash it uh, immediately after wearing it. They're gaining traction big time. And you can use code NLU at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order. That's Roback.com, R-H. Joeback.com, 20% off polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and tees with code NLU. Without any further delay, here is Cody with John Simpson. Today we're sitting at the upstairs, one of the banquet rooms at the, the beautiful Baltistral Country Club, joined by Mr. John Simpson. How are we doing today, sir? Very well. And you? Very, very good. Nice to be out here in a, a cool New Jersey late summer day. It's absolutely lovely. And it was, it was so hot yesterday. To have it a bit cooler with no sun is uh, is really brilliant. Usually it works out pretty good, at least uh, this is the second year that I've come to the Simpsons Cup where we're at now, we'll get more into. But last year we were blessed with very good weather as well out at the creek, except for the practice round day. And I remember that being biblical rain. It was yeah. crazy. Yeah, I haven't seen rain like that for a while. <laughs> right. And uh, actually in Britain right now, they, they would love it because they were in a drought. Yeah, bad uh, droughts everywhere. Yeah, sure. So, John Simpson, quite a history in golf. We're here up at Baltistral for the 10th playing of the Simpsons Cup. The, the I guess we would say, the fundraising event for the charity that you, that you spearhead. Yeah, sure. Well, it's the, the fundraiser for the On Course Foundation, which is a charity I started in uh, 2010. It's something for the guys and girls to aim at and try and represent their countries again and to raise awareness for the Simpson Cup. That's the, you know, through the Simpson Cup for the On Course Foundation. Right. So Simpson's Cup is two teams, one team representing the United States, the other representing Great Britain, 13 players per team. And I guess we have a normal kind of a modified Ryder Cup style. So we play four ball or foursomes? Four ball. Four ball and then singles uh, the second day. Yeah. Where did the Simpson Cup come from? Well, it came from the fact that when I started the charity and um, I could see um, the the amazing job the charity was doing for these injured servicemen and how good they were getting at golf, I just thought, uh, I suppose with my IMG background, it'd be great to create an event that, as we said, would raise money uh, for the On Course Foundation and um, give these guys something to aim at 
uh, because and they've aimed pretty well. Yeah, Some absolutely. of them are just quite amazing golfers now. Absolutely, including professionals that are out there. Who would have Who would have thought? You can't believe that one American and one Brit have turned pro, and uh, Chad Pfeiffer's, you know, absolutely fantastic, and uh, the young Brit Tom Brown is is um, Tom. Sorry, Mike Brown is is actually following in his footsteps. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the other day broke a course record in a professional tournament in Britain. Incredible. Not yeah. only that, racks up almost every, uh, I mean, a long list of victories on the, the European adaptive tour. Sure, sure. He won the Irish Open recently yep. and uh, won in Australia. So he's, um, he's doing extremely well. That's incredible representatives of the organization itself and... For Encores, for people that aren't familiar with it or aware, but it's all a foundation aimed to provide access or introduction into golf, not only playing, but also employment as well. Sure. Well, it was all sort of um, an idea after I played golf in Britain once, and uh, the chap I played with um, said, oh, I'd love you to come and talk to my guys. I wasn't too sure what he did, and then I found out he worked at Headley Court the British Military Rehabilitation Center. And um, when I went there and saw what I saw, and I think the numbers shook me, and I just thought I'm in a great position being in the golf business and being disabled myself. And knowing what golf could do for them as it had done for me, let's start a charity which can get them playing golf on a long-term basis. And then with employment at the end, once they've got their self-esteem and self-confidence back. And that's how it all came about, really. Yeah, not only, you know, the, the end goal, I guess, being employment opportunities, but ultimately to love the game that, that we all love, that we all cherish. And by doing so, you're giving people, I don't want to say a second look on life, but a new activity that they can play the, the rest of their life and truly saving them. There, there's multiple members that I've talked to personally that have been vocal about it, that they lost hope through their rehabilitation process. And this, not only the, the opportunities to get together with fellow disabled veterans, to the fellowship that, that your events provide, um, give them a, a new outlook, something to actually strive for. And when we talk about, you know, veteran suicide, that are, the numbers are crazy, crazy high. You're one of the few organizations who's actually having a positive influence in bringing that down. You're saving people's lives. And that's a, a huge, huge, not, not only honor, because I don't think there's, you never do too much, but something very, very proud that you can stand there and say. Yeah. Well, I'm very proud of them all, actually. But I must say, golf seems to be the only sport I've ever come across that you can actually play if you're disabled on a level playing field with able-bodied because of the handicap system. And that's tremendously powerful, you know, and it does and never cease to amaze me. Um, it happened the other day, I was playing with uh, a double amputee with a guy that didn't know that the guy that I was playing with didn't have any legs. <laughs> and the shock on his face, as he looked, and uh, he didn't know what he said, he said, uh, and uh, he just said, well, I'm off seven handicap and um, the able body chap said well I'm off 18 so it's a bit of a shock <laughs> and then uh, you had to see a guy like hit it 230 yards down the middle uh, with no legs is quite something yeah it's they half the game by the way yeah 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 <laughs> had to give him too many shots I think that's the one thing that as I continued to get deeper and deeper into the uh, adaptive golf and then really on the veterans golf side is not only finding you know, you find location that wants to host and, uh, you know, welcome everybody out for the Simpsons Cup or any of the on-course events, but really finding the instructors that have the knowledge, are capable and willing mm. to teach people golf, a lot of them beginners, like mm. we said, for the first time, but also to, to teach them the swing that fits their body. Yes. And, you know, for a lot of the guys who are amputees, you can't just sit there and talk about, alignment and hip flexion and turn and stuff like that because they don't more. have it yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah what do you mean turn my hips i don't have hips like what, oh, no. you know no. so how i guess when you going back to when on course 
started. How did you start putting all these pieces together? Well, it's a very good question because um, we had to choose the right coaches, actually, to work with us. And uh, it didn't take too long to find two or three, as it has done here, who understood exactly what the situations were very quickly. And uh, even to the point of working out, if you have one arm, are you going to play left-handed or right-handed? Basic stuff like that. And you can work that out very quickly if you know what you're doing. It's amazing to see the confidence that they instill in someone. But also, I think the key when you have new guys coming along to our uh, on-course events for the first time, and 80% of the guys and girls we have have never played golf before their injuries. Some of them are even wondering what they're doing at a golf course. <laughs> you know, and um, one of the best things that I always think about it is the coach will say a few words about what they're going to do over the next three days. And then he gets one of our existing, call them members, who will stand up and uh, with whatever injuries they might have, but they've got handicaps now, and hit tremendous shots. And the look on everybody's faces. And I think it's without exaggeration, in the first morning session, 99% of the time, every one of them is going to hit the wow shot. And we all know what that means. You've got them. And they can't stop practicing and playing from there on in. Yep, they're hooked. It's phenomenal. That's why we all love this game because of that. So I guess we're up here. The Simpsons Cup this year, we're coming in. Last year at the Creek, the U.S. team barely edged out the team from, from Great Britain. The record is now five for Team U.S., four for a team from Great Britain. I know it's intense competition when they're actually outside playing, but when you get everybody together, incredible camaraderie across the board, and it's something that even though they might come from different parts of the world, as soon as you put them all in the same room together, they just click. Yes. Well, they do. They've all had the same path. They're all in the military, and uh, generally with all the wars and problems there are in the world it always seems to be the brits and the americans that get stuck in together and fight or lead the fight right. one chap uh, an american once told me very good point he said you know we fight together we have fought together we get injured together and some of us have had people that have died and then we never see each other again in different countries you move you know, and to get them all back together knowing they've been through the same thing uh, is quite wonderful, I think. Yeah, it's crazy, the, the bonds that are formed, and not only for this one week, but people stay in contact and continue the banter for all year long. Absolutely. Friendship forever. It's, yep. it's really right, quite right. Yes. Absolutely. So we're here till Wednesday. We'll conclude. This podcast, like I told you, will come out on Tuesday evening. So if people are interested, they want to follow along, we'll be out here all week. Follow us around along on our socials. They can follow the Simpsons Cup on Instagram and Twitter. And if people out there, if we have veterans that want to get involved in not only the Simpsons Cup, but really dig into the On Course Foundation, where can they go to? Well, the best one is OnCourseFoundationUSA.org. And uh, get it, or if you know anybody that would like to come along, and uh, we would love to see them, and we can get in touch with them and, and tell them how it works. Great. Sal, you talked a lot about you have vast experience within the golf world, establishing not only new events and everything, but where did that start out from for you? Um, well, I think it all started when, um, you know, I obviously took up the game when I was 13, and I got down to seven handicap, and then after a while, uh, everybody's saying, what are you going to do with your life? And I went to college, university, and um, I'd heard about this company in the States called IMG and Mark McCormack and you know managing the big three with uh, Arnold Palmer and uh, Gary Player and Jack Nicholas. and I thought I'll write to Mark McCormack uh, which I did and then I thought just before I finish university he must get so many letters from all around the world saying you know how can I make this a little bit different and being a bit cheeky I sort of said uh, in the letter that uh, I didn't think he could go on much longer without me. 
within his company. <laughs> and he must have thought, who is this idiot? Yeah. I've got to meet him. And how old were you at the time? Well, I just said, so I was 25 at the time. Where did, where did you muster up the strength, not only to write the letter, because anybody could write a letter, but to be that confident in yourself? Well, I, had, I think golf had a lot to do with that. You know, I think, uh, and also the fact that um, I, I was really, you have to get confident in just being able to walk again. Right. Uh, and I just think that I've always felt, and I've instilled this into the girls and the guys at On Course, you, you basically, if you simplify everything, if something goes wrong, physically or mentally, with you, this you have two choices after it's all done. One, you can feel sorry for yourself. That actually works for a little while, because everybody, you poor guy, and is it hurt, and what can I do to help? It, it's very short-lived. People, people get fed up. They don't want to hear it anymore. Or you can say, right, this has happened, now I've got to be the very best I can. And you cut a lot of corners because you realize what the other side is all about. And you don't want to go back there. You just want to keep positive and do the very best you can in whatever you're going to do. I don't think people realize that at a very early age, and part of the reason why you, you not only feel, but you can relate so much to the disabled veterans that are out here is because of your own disability. Yes. I, I was, um, I caught polio when I was two. And um, when I was 13, I went in to have some operations on my leg that didn't work. And uh, I spent most of that year in hospital, which left me having to, I mean, some of them went well, some of them didn't. So I have to wear a, a sort of brace for the rest of my life, learn how to walk again. And uh, luckily my dad um, was a golfer. I'd never hit a golf ball. And uh, he said, you know, there's one game you can play on this level playing field, it's golf. I remember a story very vividly. I was conscious of the fact that I couldn't walk very well. Um, and it was a hot summer in Britain. And I got some clubs of my dad's or whatever, and uh, I hid behind the caddy shack so no one could see me because I used to fall over most of the time. And then he told me that he had a friend, my father, there was a doctor who um, he would like me to meet, and that's all I remember. So about a few weeks later, I was standing behind the Caddyshack, and I heard this loud, billowing voice sounding, John. So I came out, and it turned out to be this doctor, friend of my father's. He said, come on, we're going to play a few holes. Now, I'd never been on the golf course, and I was terrified. So I said, no, no, no. no. So he really bellowed again come on we'll do it you know, so i went up there and to cut a long story short we ended up playing three holes and um i must have been without exaggeration took me four shots to get to his drive turned out he played off six and just on uh, it i got to the second hole before he turned around to me and said if you want to play this game you have to walk quicker than that and I thought, Christ, how could he talk to me like that? I've got a bad leg. For, you know, I've been in hospital, my leg hurts. But, and he just repeated it again. And he was quite a tough guy. You know, I was only 13. I thought, God, dear me. So I forget the golf. I just did, kept up with him. Forget the golf. I couldn't get anywhere close to him. Got in the clubhouse. And he didn't say anything. Went into the changing room. And he waited till everybody left. Just looked at me. Without saying anything, he dropped his trousers. And I thought, oh, this is going to be an end to a great day. And I can't run away. This is great. And he took his trousers down and he had one leg amputated below the knee. And the other one was in such a mess, I couldn't look at it. And he said, John, never, ever complain about your leg because nobody wants to hear about it. Come on, let's go and have a drink. And I was 13. So I said, great. So, and he was a doctor that lost his leg in the Second World War. He wasn't a doctor. He got the military cross, which is a very high medal. Yeah. Lost his leg in Italy and became a doctor five years later. 
A quick break here to check in with our friends at Golf Blueprint. You can go to golfblueprint.com, find a whole bunch of information of specifically how Kevin and Nico will help you become a better golfer. All you got to do is input some information about your golf game, and they will come up with a practice plan specifically tailored for your golf game. It's going to keep you from mindlessly beating balls on the range, just hitting a ton of seven irons. gives you certain targets to aim at, certain games you could play, uh, different things to help you train your brain, train your body, which is how you should be practicing. Look, I'm guilty of it. Uh, you know, the little time I get to go practice, I go and just randomly beat balls, and I can definitely correlate better golf that I've played with a specific practice plan multiple times a week. It's just like a personal trainer for your golf game, right? If you want to work out and get in better shape, you need to do it specific times, need to do specific things to address the muscles you want to address. It's just like that with golf. They got multiple membership options on their website as well, and you can uh, also do indoor and outdoor memberships. You can switch between them as people move between seasons and whatnot. You can go to golfblueprint.com and use code NLU20 to get 20% off your first month. They got a bunch of data on there highlighting uh, just how much they've allowed their members to improve their golf. And I, I highly recommend it. So again, golfblueprint.com, NLU20 for 20% off your first month. Let's get back to John Simpson. You grew up in a military household as well, both your mother and your father serving. Do you think that, I don't want to call it tough love, I think it's just love, but it helped the fact that it came from someone else outside of your mom or dad. Mm. Yes, I think it did. And, uh, but I, I, was, I remembered something the other day, which just brought it home. And I was, as a parent myself, I thought, my God, what a tough one. I remember that 13th year when I got out of hospital, some friends came around and they said, come on, let's climb that wall and go across the other side. And I remember it was about eight foot. And I thought, yeah, it's a good idea. No thinking, you know, they would do, I can do that. And I remember turning around and seeing my mother absolutely horrified. And she called my father and I heard her say, what are we going to do? And he said, let him go. Now it was a hell of a brave thing to do on both their part, because I don't think I could have done that if it was my child, knowing that if I fell, I was going to be in huge trouble. Right. But um, small things like that make all the difference. Yeah. And obviously built up not only the the courage, but resilience that mm. carried you into your adult life. Sure. Which is exactly what the resilience and that's what is instilled in these guys. Yeah. They're so really resilient and they never, ever complain about anything, which is also wonderful. If anybody has something to complain about of just walking around the place and going on with life is these guys. Right. Never a complaint ever. I've never no, heard one. No complaints, but plenty of tough tough ribbing out there oh well that's that's what we all love and and the the sense of humor is just uh, it's phenomenal yeah and sometimes quite i don't know what you call it here but in break they call it uh, some dodgy humor yes because it's very close to the line and yeah if people overhear it they're horrified <laughs> how could you say that to him he's got you know well, because he's just <laughs> yeah. we got because he knows we know and he knows that i know we're on the same boat well, we know about a little of your upbringing now, and we figured out how you, you mustered the courage to write that cheeky note to Mark McCormick. So did he reply to you? Yeah, I actually met with him and another, through another guy as well. And uh, um, I was on a, 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 a trial for four months, and he actually had a very... He got back at me with that bit of humor because the four-month trial ended, and... Uh, there was a, um, a meeting that I had with him and he was going on about everything except telling me whether I'd made it or not. And just to put you in the picture, at that point there was a new company started up called ProServe, which had started in tennis and were getting into golf. And I thought to myself, when is he going to tell me if I'm in or not? Because I was, I was, you know, quite on edge. And at the end he, he said, you're probably wondering... Um, what we all think about your four-month trial. So I was trying to be cool about it. Uh, well, I hadn't thought about that much, yes, but yes. And he said, well, I think you've got a hell of a career in this business, but we think it's with ProServe. <laughs> <laughs> so I went from way up high to sort of hit the deck, and then he just burst out laughing. And uh, so he got me back. <laughs> So what were those early days at IMG for you like? Well, they were, they were great days, actually, because um, Mark was such a visionary. Uh, and 
some people would say that professional sport is where it is today because of Mark and a lot of, you know, what he did with Arnold Palmer. The great thing about it, we were often writing the rules as we went along because there wasn't any on how to do it. We made them up, some successfully, some unsuccessfully, but it was great fun. And the, the thing that never ceased to amaze me within, um, I mean, we had, we took three clients, you know, not a bad three ball to start with, Nick Faldo, Nicky Price and Bernard Langer. And uh, all of a sudden they started doing well. And the thing about sport then was a lot of the decision makers and the bosses as now in corporations were golfers. And if you contacted them or said that uh, you'd like to talk to them about, you wouldn't go and see the number 18 guy in the company. You'd be in front of the president who would basically say, okay, I've got 15 minutes. Why should I do this? And you're speaking to a guy that you've heard of in huge, powerful job. You now got 15 minutes to persuade him why he should take on one of our clients uh, and sponsor them. Do you remember back to any of those early deals that you were a part of? Oh, sure. Um, I remember uh, some of them very successfully, the majority. But I do remember in the early days, Mark McCormack and Hughes Norton, who used to run the golf over here told me that they just signed Bill Rogers, this young Texan. And um, he came over unknown. Anyway, he, he was um, doing quite well over here. And in those days, because television wasn't worldwide, you could have a you know, deal with a company in America, then a different company, say, talking about clothing, for example, in Britain, a different one in Japan, different one in South America, because it wasn't worldwide right. television. So he was coming over to play the Open, which in fact, Bill Rogers won at, at Ross and George's. He won the Open. So I thought, God, we, everybody's saying, if you can do a deal for him, that would really help us. And then we've just signed him. I was meeting this British company and they make very nice golf clubs. Anyway, I got uh, this deal done for Bill Rogers. And I couldn't wait to ring Americans to tell them the new boy had done good. And they said uh, very quietly, John, have you ever seen Bill play? So I said, well, I've seen pictures. John, he doesn't wear a glove. <laughs> I went, oh, Jesus. Oh, God, no, please. You're joking. <laughs> so I had to sort of go back very, yeah. <clears throat> well, Bill doesn't wear, wear a glove, but boy, have I got another guy that will fill the... <laughs> <laughs> Must have hurt his hand. He's not wearing a glove anymore. <laughs> But so, and other ones actually, you know, luckily turned out successfully. But uh, it wasn't only people within the golf industry. Obviously, you had to sit down with the boss of Mercedes or yeah. the boss of Boss or, or the boss of Rolex and um, see what they could get out of sport as well. And you can see where some of those companies are now. And at golf. the time, you're still a very young man. What was it like going into these board meetings, meeting with these high level executives? and saying, this is who I am, this is who I represent, but I need you to believe yeah. in me well, and the product that I'm, I'm getting. Yeah, I, I think I never under mess, you know, being humble, I think, is quite crucial. But, you know, if you think about who I was managing, that's not uh, some guys, that, and they all did carry on doing so well. It got easier and easier, that, but and then harder and harder because you weren't just asking money for a guy that might win a major or might win a tournament. You're now talking about a guy that's won two or one, and it's a whole different ball game. Now it's a, a deal which involves not just being paid, but maybe he becomes part of the company, um, has shares in the company, has royalties on all the products. It, it's a whole worldwide. So it became quite a, a, a different type of um, just getting some money up front that you could help with a guy getting on tour. Right. And then over time, you just kept adding to your Rolodex. Some phenomenal players, not just the three that you already mentioned, but, but it just kept growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger for you. Yeah, it was. It was huge. And uh, I think we had an amazing uh, Ryder Cup once um, in the early days. It was early 80s. And I think uh, we had like 65% um, of all the teams put together were managed by us. So hence, we'd gone from nowhere to, uh, to somewhere. And then, of course, well, the inevitable happened. When you start 
doing something well in a market that is new. Um, other people say, gosh, we'd love to get into this business. And all of a sudden you've got opposition and, and good opposition and some very bad opposition, which helped. But there were some very good guys that started in opposition to us and it just stopped the whole thing. You've got to be even better. Right. Which I think is great. Yeah, everybody always says competition is good, right? It, it helps uh, the overall business of, of life. But ultimately, when you have some bad actors out there who are not playing by the rules, mm. it will ultimately help you in the end. Well, it did. I, it got to a point once where new companies would start up. I was in a great position that if you're trying to sign someone in the 80s or 90s, uh, and onwards from there, you know, they could always go and have a chat with Arnold Palmer or Gary Player or some of the guys that they really respect in the game that we managed. And some of the new company, companies that came along um, would say, well, we can't do that because we don't have anybody who managed. Uh, we'll give them a signing on fee. Let's give them a few hundred. Let's give them, a, you know, $500,000. What? So it's like me going into a biscuit factory and saying, well, I know how to make biscuits. You know, I'll, I'll pay uh, this amount of money to get into it. it, it You've got to know what you're talking about. Those sort of guys didn't last too long. When did that change? Did you see it coming kind of on the horizon or did it, it just kind of pop up out of nowhere? I think with the worldwide television, the amount of monies that were being put into golf and other sports. If we look at the timeline of professional golf, when a global feed came, is that a clear, yes. linear mark of that's when kind of it really the business of it changed? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, new markets were coming into it, you know, and you just have to look now at the Koreans uh, in ladies and men's golf, the Japanese, the Australians. And you see, it's all, it's all, you know, become a real worldwide game and the Europeans particularly. You know, I, I, I remember when I first started, I don't think there was probably two countries that took any live golf in Europe. Wow. You remember what they were? Which countries? Yes. I'm trying to think, actually. I think it was France and Spain, I think, because they had some, but not major stuff, just uh, a few right. bits and pieces here and there. But I always they, think back because, you, you, you know, I think for us, Seve was a player that was a little bit before my time. Mm. And you look back at all the flashback footage and documentaries and movies that they put out, and he seems to be this this great not only athlete, golfer, businessman, but this kind of flamboyant character who just sashayed his way across the world. And I remember thinking about it like, well, did his country know who exactly Seve was to the rest of the world? Mm. I know. Um, and he was more popular in Britain than he was in Spain. Um, but um, he was, the, in my book, the ultimate guy you'd want to manage. Um, and we didn't manage him. He'd already been signed by Ed Barner when I joined IMG. Um, we became good friends, actually, Seve and I, and um, we tried to sign him on a, a, a few times. But when he did leave Ed Barner and, uh, and others, he then... His brothers took over, and he was very family orientated, so it was a no-brainer he was going to do that. He was an amazing guy. And I remember actually going down, he invited me down, and obviously I was trying to sign him, and I think he knew that. So he said, we'll play some golf and talk about it anyway. And uh, cutting a long story short, I was playing with him, and uh, I think on the 15th it was all over. It beat me quite, I think he was 500 at that point. And he said to me, oh, come on, we'll play for... We'd already I'd lost the fact we were going to play for dinner. <laughs> then his brothers were coming and their wives were coming. <laughs> so I'd lost everything all the way along. And uh, he said, well, play for the wine. And I thought, well, that's all right, because Seve doesn't drink. But then I realized the others did. Right. <laughs> I was in big trouble. <laughs> so I said, okay, so we've got, we're going to play a few, just to the end. So what are you going to give me? How many shots? He said, Juan, no shots, no shots. I said, Seve, you're number one in the world. What are you talking about? So he said, no. I'll hit every shot, he said, off my knees, except for putting, where I'll stand up. So I said, done. And I was level par, and he was one under. So I mean, that says it all. He could do anything, 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 anything. And he told me that everybody said in those days that he was, had the best short game 
in the world. I would agree with that, as everybody other playing with him would agree with. And he said that um, the last thing he did at practicing, when it was nearly dark, he'd take a handful of balls in his huge hands and throw them over his shoulder near the green and got up and down them, all of them, till he left. It's incredible. Now, it is incredible. Every day, and that was the end of the day, after he'd spent all the time hitting off the beach, so in you know, long bunker shots and had it hit it off the top. Just an amazing guy. And such flair. Right. The women, I tell you what, the women around, each part of the world you're in, they loved Seve. <laughs> Except we had a great one here. I just think that sometimes in this lovely country of America, you know, sometimes they get the names wrong of foreigners. And it used to really grind Seve. Because you had a, a sort of love-hate relationship here on the Gulf. And I remember at the tournament, I was going out for dinner with him. And this rather large um, American local newspaper reporter came over and wanted to speak to Seve. And this was at the end of the day. And he was just practicing his putting. And uh, he was over the ball. And there was nobody else there but me and this reporter. And uh, he says, hey, Steve, I want to talk to you. And he never looked up and he went, uh, <laughs> fuming. Steve, I want to talk to you. He said, me Seve, not Steve. <laughs> and I won't tell you what he called him after that, but that was that. <laughs> but, and the guy was totally confused why anybody could be so rude. Well, excuse me for noticing his name was Seve. Right. Which couldn't be, it must be a spelling, it's got to be Steve. <laughs> So we talk about global TV feed and kind of how it changed. What do you think the next thing that came along that kind of changed the business of professional golf was? I think the, the growth of golf itself. You know, it's all the golf industry stemmed by how many golfers they are. I remember, for example, Bob, Sir Bob Charles, who was the first Brit, sorry, New Zealander ever to win the British Open at Royal Lytham, funny enough. He always, when I negotiated his club deals, and he had a royalty on his left-handed clubs. The one country that always said, we've got to keep him, we've got to have him, was Canada, because the vast majority are left-handed. <laughs> so, and then you find out that you know, ladies golf in Korea starts up. Well now, how many golf clubs do you think they're selling in Korea and clothes and companies want to get involved with? Uh, and so it was a natural progression from all the spin-offs but all stem around the fact that more and more people were playing golf. And I love to see now, it's not a, a, a rich man's game that everybody thinks it is. Obviously, the couple of names we've mentioned, like Serbi and Bernard Langer, uh, definitely you know, came from very poor backgrounds. Right. That's how it should be. So it's much easier if you haven't come from a moneyed background to take up golf. I mean, it gives you a little fire in your belly, a little fight to keep wanting more and more and more always afraid, I guess, of looking behind and realizing where you come from. And everybody's biggest fear is going back to that point. Sure. When did you end up leaving IMG? That was 97. So what 20 was 20 years nearly. Yeah. What was it like kind of, uh, I'm going to go back to the early 90s and you first started hearing about this kid named Tiger Woods and IMG, not only being interested, but playing a, a part in his overall development and then having Hugh come around, or Hughes, excuse me. And then, do you remember those times? Was it full of excitement, or was there still just kind of confusion of what's going oh, on? Oh, no, it was always excitement, because I always loved what we were doing, and uh, growing the, the, the business was, was superb. Uh, there's a couple of things. Number one, I was having to travel a hell of a lot around the world, as it were. Primarily UK-based. Yeah, because my wife wanted the children to be educated there, so... It meant me having to travel a lot more. I should have been over here, actually. But I'm sure worked. you got very used to the Cleveland airport. Oh, yeah. But Lucky was even more excited when Mark spent most of his time in Orlando. Of course. So no, but, and, it, you know, the business changed. You didn't have to be, as you can see now. Yeah. All the, the other thing is that IMG had such success, it became a corporation. And there's very good things about being a corporation. But there's a few things that have to change from being entrepreneurially led, led, if you like. 
there was always that joke you had somebody actually counting how many pencils the officers were using around the world. You know, it, it, it's an exaggeration, right. but that happens. And I think there's a natural progression in life, and I just felt myself that it was time to move on. You know, I will always speak so fondly of IMG. Someone asked me the other day whether I ever missed it, and very quickly I said, yes, I did. And I think anybody that had the times that we had then, we had some great times. And um, I was actually with a, a, a chap that ran Europe, and uh, Ian Todd, super guy. And um, he gave, was the last guy to uh, give me the sort of loyalty talk and said, John, you can't do this. You've got to stay the companies, you know. Anyway, um, he didn't manage to persuade me. And I noticed within a year, he'd gone to uh, head up Nike in uh, the West Coast so <laughs> in the marketing side. So everybody's got a point where you think a good is, you know, change is good. Right. When you decided to move on, what, what was next on the docket for you? I think just to concentrate on areas that, A, I enjoyed, and to, to get a little bit more, less traveling. I didn't think I succeeded too well on that one. But, and naturally, things, some things go well and some things don't. But as it's sort of gone on, when I look back, you know, the thing that really has made it all for me is on course. Yeah. You know, I, I spend my time now I was doing, you know, obviously some business around, but, you know, you mentioned earlier about saving people's lives, and that's a hell of a line to say of a throwaway, and I would never do that. You know, I can't count the amount of times that people have told me that um, one chap actually said that um, before he joined on course, he had exactly worked out where he was going to do it, commit suicide. And he's looking you straight in the eyes, and you know he means it. Right. And I think the more that we can do, because I know what we do works and it works well, and then get them playing golf and then get them into uh, employment. We had a very good uh, story, actually, and uh, says a lot about what we do. We had a, a guy in Britain uh, three years ago and he had a head injury, but luckily was OK, but brain injury with it, but OK. And he, he wanted to get some work experience, which is what we do a lot in greenkeeping. And funnily enough, we got him the job um, as a sort of trial at, at Royal Lytham, which he passed with flying colours. And two years later, they had got the greenkeeping lot, some special machine in, which they rented to do some work. And it broke down after an hour. They were furious to think that the company that had they'd rented it from, couldn't come and fix it for another day. And Dave said, um, I can fix that. Because you forget these guys have got tremendous skills yeah, in absolutely. many areas. Yeah. So he fixed it. 18 months ago, he started a new job in charge of all machinery at Wentworth Golf Club near London, which is one of the top clubs in the country. I mean, that makes my day, my week, my year. And there's so many stories like that, apart from what you chaps have seen them hitting golf balls and it's just mind-boggling to me. I'm so proud of them. And see Nick, I, I was, I, Nick, the triple amputee, as you know, and uh, I was standing, I actually videoed it, video, so I've got it and I show people. And any golfer you play it to, you know he's hit it right out of the middle of the club, his driver, and we measured it at 216 yards. It sounds like a rocket going off. And the balance, you know, with high up legs amputated, it's just a marvel. So if we look towards the future, what, what does the Encourse Foundation evolve into? Well, I think, firstly, it evolves into the fact we really want to get America, you know, at full pelt. And that means money. So we've got to raise a lot more money. Uh, in Britain, we know how big America is. America doesn't often realize, A, where Britain is, but more importantly, <laughs> Britain fits into Florida. Right. You know, so it's a huge country here. And so we've got the East Coast pretty well covered. We're now in Texas. But there's so many areas we want to get into. And I'm really keen and, and uh, I just want to do the very best cause I, and push it as hard as we can right now in America because we've done very well in getting... We've got over a thousand people now in, in Britain. 
and over 200 in employment, some form of employment. And I know we can do that here, and I know the results are going to be huge. So we, you know, to me, I'm so channeled in getting that done. Right. Some of the issues with growth, specifically in the nonprofit space, what, what are the, the roadblocks that you run into? Well, it's interesting. It's a very good question, that. And I never thought, I, I didn't realize. But if you look at all the major military charities in America and Britain, the sad thing is, if the guys are not on the news being injured or killed, the money drops significantly. Yeah. And people forget. We've got over 3 million injured in this country with a high suicide. And we need money to keep them all going. You know, so it, that's the thing that shook me. And I think that the great thing about, I think, this particular charity is that, you know, we can have a fundraiser, which is where we make a lot of our money from. They say, right, we're going to sell 22 teams or whatever. We send 22 of our guys and girls down there you don't have to say much more. You've got them. You know, and they want to keep on supporting you because this um, is not a short fix, short-term fix. This is a long-term project. And as I can tell you, it doesn't get easier with life if you're disabled. It gets harder. And these guys and girls have to have, to have the, in my opinion, the very best for as long as they can do it. And they're going to get that from us. A lot of this comes down to relationships. You've spent your entire career starting, cultivating, grooming, and maintaining relationships all mm. across the world. Mm. It seems extremely daunting or taxing at times, but how do you maintain it all? Well, it, it's, it's, that's also a very good question because people change. Circumstances change. Uh, people perceive you've done a, a good job. A bad job and people are human beings you know make you make somebody in the early days a million a year off the course and the first thing they say that, that's great but when are we gonna make two million you know hold on we haven't got to the end of the year this year yet keeping relationship going and and, uh, and also i think you know wives as we all know have a, and girlfriends are a very important part positively and negatively you know, if they feel that they met a guy in the pro-am who had a word with them saying, how much do, money does he make from his investments? Or oh, about 10%. Ha, <laughs> God, what a joke. We do about 30. You know, you've got people trying, and it's usually all rubbish, but. So all these things going, and remember, in golf, these top golfers are always playing every Wednesday with a lot of very good people in charge of very prominent prominent companies but also some not so honorable and prominent people who have their ear so it's fighting this major uh, battle all the time but um i always noted at img the clients that and it's all about trust trusted what we were doing not only in in the merchandising and making money for them but the guidance as to where they want to be in 10 years five years three years doing all their day-to-day -day work for them, all their financial work, and knowing they can then go and do what they know best, which is to uh, be the very best they can be on the golf course. Absolutely. We saw a couple of weeks ago, Nick Faldo finally stepped down from his role as, as the lead analyst for CBS Golf. I know you've known him for a very, very long time, not only as a player, but then continuing in in the broadcaster role. If you could kind of talk about your guys' relationship and then, you know, how you think retirement's going to work out for him. Yeah. Well, I, I, number one, I think he was, uh, he was an amazing golfer, uh, one of the best I've ever seen. And he raised the level where Tiger took it to another level. And with the professional, first sort of guy, what he ate, the equipment, uh, the, he, he left nothing to chance. And I think that he's taken that into broadcasting. I think he was absolutely superb in broadcasting. It's funny how people are going to retire. I think I've always felt Nick would be very happy being on a farm, which I know he's bought now, and fly fishing. He's a great fly fisherman. And having people that, that he, he'd want around him. And, um, you know, he's just got married again, and uh, which is good. So I wish him all the best for that. But... Um, 
you know, there's, there's life changes and uh, how you get on to the next phase and what, what's going to make you happy is sometimes difficult. Yeah, speaking of life changing, I know you spent the vast majority of your career working primarily with professional golfers that played full time on the European tour. When we look at the professional golf landscape now and how much has changed the, you know, the absolute onset of live golf, we were talking a little bit early about what you actually need for an event to get started. Mm. If, if you could describe that to, to the listeners, sure, we'll, kind of go from there. It's, it's, uh, the key to everything is television. So if you want to start a new tournament, um, if you get the television organized worldwide, you then get the sponsors knowing you've got the television. You then have the players. Live Golf in their situation haven't done that. They've got finance coming in from Saudi Arabia or whatever. So the, the first two things, which is television and sponsorship, are taken out and they are being funded to create a, a series of uh, a tour. I'm just going to be very interested to see what happens because sometimes things need to shake up. We all do. But looking into the crystal ball, which we don't know, you know, the guys that I've always managed, the successful ones in the time I was around, they wanted to be measured by how many majors they won. You know, at IMG, we started the world, in those days, the Sony World Ranking, which is still used by the four majors to get anybody in. But if you're not playing on the tours, you're not going to get the points. So I think that's going to be an interesting time. And Augusta's going to be the first one, uh, which is by invitation as well, as to see who they're going to pick and how they're going to pick. The vast majority of income generated or earnings per year for professional golfers used to come from endorsements or or such things off the course. Sure. Now there's you're flip-flopping it, and it's shaking up the business as a whole. Um, and it brings into question for a lot of people of what, what are they going to practice, what are they motivated to play for. Mm. I think that cuts them a little bit short because they are professionals. This is what they love to do, and everybody wants to win. Mm. But if you take something out of the belly that you're you're scratching for it's very easy to say that maybe he doesn't want it you know or won't fight as bad he already has the money in his pocket the money's gotten kind of out of control and you can do that because the who who really knows what the true end state of the sovereign you know investment fund what they want but at some point in time it's hard to look back past the fact that if they're not stating what they want, they're just doing it to help repair some form of image. Mm. They want their name out there more. And it doesn't matter if it's coming from Live or on the ladies' European tour, if we want to talk about the Aramco series, mm. things like that. Do you think there is an end state to all of this? You have to think there's some... It'd be good to get around a table, I think. It would be sensible. But just, and, and try and work out a win-win for everybody. When you mentioned earlier a very good point about being hungry, a lot of the guys that, like Arnold Palmer, who I was a big fan of, and was, you know, um, patron of the On Course Foundation, and when I asked him if he would be patron, it was a quick yes, I'll do anything for him, which was wonderful. And I always thank him for that. But he had a few pennies in his bank account when he played, and he wanted to play to win. Nick Faldo, yes, 100%. Bernard Langer, how successful is he now? And how much money do you think he's made over the years? They want to win, and they want to win majors. Most of the guys that I know. Yes, I remember Bruce Litsky, who we didn't manage, but I thought he was a fantastic golfer. And he had a figure in his mind that he wanted to get to each year, which meant he could live really well. And once he reached that figure, he'd leave the tour. The next year, which I thought was brilliant. I wish I was good at anything like that, that you could do that. <laughs> Most of the guys that win majors are, are more interested in the legacy they leave and doing the very best they can and 
in the the time that they have at the top to be the best. And I think it was always measured in majors. Jack being the, the classic example. Right. And Tiger. We talk about Liv. We talk about a lot about the PGA Tour, where they're currently at, what the future kind of looks like. But ultimately, who's taken two black eyes from this whole process is the European or DP World Tour. What could they possibly do? They have their new and improved strategic alliance with the PGA Tour, but it seems like they're the ones that are coming out the shortest of this whole deal. Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult to look back and in and, and hindsight and say, well, he should have done that. But, you know, if, if you'd look where a few years ago where the American Tour was and how successful that was, I would have thought that the European Tour should have been in bed with the, the American Tour a few years ago, and it would have made sense. But whether, I, I don't know the full reasons, but something was stopping it. And it made sense. I could see that, that that, that, that would really strengthen the whole thing. And um, yeah, I'm quite worried about the European Tour, actually. I'm a huge fan of it all, but again, it's that crystal ball. We just don't know what's gonna happen. And what the sponsor's gonna get to do. You know, that really is led by uh, the interests and sponsors and television. Unless you've got the the stars playing in your own events, it's very difficult to keep the, the levels high. Yeah, absolutely. As we get ready to wrap this up, I think it's one thing to come to an event like this to see phenomenal camaraderie between the representatives from both teams, the staff that you have out here, the host club, uh, but ultimately how successful and powerful the foundation has turned into, and ultimately that being reflected by your home country and the royal family. And you've been given one of the highest honors, something that as an American, I don't know anything about. I know that we're supposed to call Nick Faldo, Sir Nick Faldo. Oh, gosh. But I also you better know, do it, otherwise yes. you get a slap around the head. <laughs> but I also know you uh, are kind of in the same boat as him. So could we talk a little bit about the awards that, that you've been given? Well, I got, I was, I'm very honored to uh, have received a medal from the Queen. The uh, It's called the Member of the British Empire. Sounds very old, yeah, doesn't very it? very good. I really took on behalf of the On Course Foundation because they're everything to me. I was very honored when we actually started the On Course Foundation in Britain, firstly. And um, one of the big things the Brits always do at Christmas, the Queen on Christmas Day gives a speech to, the, to Britain and the Commonwealth. I was contacted, this is in 2010, um, in November by somebody from the palace saying um, that um, just to let me know, but I couldn't say anything, that there was some footage from when we started the On Course Foundation from uh, the Royal Family's own nine-hole course at Windsor. That's where we actually started it. And um, the Queen uh, said she would like to show it on uh, her Queen's speech. So talk about being ahead of the game. We were putting this, <laughs> we started the whole thing in, uh, and in four months we were on television and everybody's saying, God, this uncomfortable spot, where are they? Right. Uh, <clears throat> well, give me a few months and we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to you, you know. But, uh, um, and the other thing, I, just going back to that, that I think is very crucial, you know, the, uh, a, a big lesson I learned at IMG and everybody should learn, you know, people can talk a good game and what worries me, few people deliver it. And what I never wanted to do with this was to say, here we are, here's this charity, we're gonna be brilliant, this is what we're gonna do. So I held back uh, for a year or two until I didn't have to say anything. Just come here and watch young Ian Bishop, who has uh, got no legs, now playing off six handicap. That says everything, and that's where the growth has come from. Rather than saying what we're going to do, we say, this is what we've done. And now we, we're, we can do that here as well. So uh, I th I'm hoping and I really believe that's the right way to go. Absolutely. So thank you, John. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you to, you know, one of your proud sponsors and ours as well, and Charles Schwab. 
Fantastic. If people haven't watched the Challengers video for 2022, it's up there. It's you and last year's Simpsons Cup team. It's a phenomenal watch. And again, if people want to get more involved, they can go to the, the Encourse Foundation website. They can follow along on any social platform or, like I said, we'll be up here all week. That's great. Well, thank you very much and it's much appreciated. Yes, sir. Thank you. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. 